Johnson County dropping its mask order. Kansas City dropping old capacity restrictions. Are we headed for a confusing mess? We look at what it means to you. Plus, another week of violence and another week of condemnations and messages of enough is enough. But will anything change? Those stories and the rest of the week's news straight ahead. Week in Review is made possible through the generous support of Dave and Jamie Cummings, Bob and Marlies Gourley, the Courtney S. Turner Charitable Trust, John H. Mize and Bank of America N.A. co-trustees, and by viewers like you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Nick Haynes, and it's great to have your company on our journey together through the news of our week. Jumping on board with us for the next 30 minutes from KCUR News, Steve Kraske, whose station is at the center of one of the biggest stories in our city this week. We'll get to that in a moment. Also with us is 41 Action News investigative reporter Kat Reed, the editor of our African-American newspaper, The Call, Eric Wesson, and KNBC9 chief political reporter, Michael Mahoney. Up first, if you're told you don't have to wear a mask anymore, would you still wear one? Starting this weekend, one of the biggest parts of our metro dropping its mask mandate. Johnson County leaders voting to remove face covering requirements that have been in place since June. But private businesses can still require you to do so, and county leaders strongly recommend you continue to wear them. So if that's the case, why drop the mask mandate at all, Kat Reed? Well, the original plan was to drop it when the vaccination rate reached 50%. They're currently at 42%, but health leaders expect it to hit 50% by the end of April. So this is following the original original guidance, but I know there are a lot of people who probably do want to see the mask mandate continue. So it will be a contentious debate, certainly. Now, big stores like Target and Costco are still going to require you, Steve Kraske, to wear masks. Businesses can still decide whether to, you know, to, to do that. But isn't this just going to put a lot of pressure on those frontline workers who are already lowly paid, who may have already been abused during this time by customers unhappy with these policies, and now they have to police this whole system? Oh, absolutely, Nick. You feel for those folks. And you feel, you know, for leaders who have tried to navigate this pandemic. Look how much confusion there is out there right now about what rules are in place and what municipalities if we're confused, some of us on this panel still are, I can only imagine what the average citizen is out there. The folks who are going to take the brunt of that are those frontline workers who have to, you know, tell people coming into a store, hey, you got to get a mask on. People, with all this confusion, there's going to be a lot of anger, Nick. You know, I was expecting this week, actually, also for Mayor Quinta Lucas to announce that they would also be dropping their mask mandate. That didn't happen, Michael Mahoney. Instead, uh, we have the mayor talking about uh, relaxing almost every other restriction on businesses, including, for the first time, no capacity limiters, limits rather on businesses, bars and restaurants. And hopefully, this is a moment of relief for them. We still have to be safe, but it's relief. That relief really mean? Does that mean uh, that restaurants can bring back all of those tables they removed during the course of this pandemic? That's my understanding of it, Nick. Uh, the uh, the only thing that remains from these restrictions in Kansas City, Missouri, right now, are, is the indoor mask restriction. And if you are sitting in a restaurant or uh, you're uh, you're having a drink so uh, somewhere. Um, 
you can be at the bar. You don't have to be seated. You can take the mask off then. If you're at an event where uh, they are certain that everybody has been vaccinated, and I was just at a meeting on Wednesday night where there were no masks uh, uh, around because everybody was vaccinated at that point. Um, everything is pretty much off the table in Kansas City, Missouri, save for this indoor mask uh, uh, requirement. And um, uh, we'll, we'll see. Uh, Steve's point to uh, the pressure being on uh, workers in some of these shops is uh, is right on the button. No, that's uh, it's going to be terribly unfair on those folks. And the other issue, uh, Eric Wesson, is the fact that in Kansas City, Missouri now, yes, the businesses are supposedly looking at news reports, delighted, thrilled to bits that these restrictions are going away, but they can't find people to work. Uh, they're trying to bring people back. There's no one available to do that. Yeah, and that's been a problem. And I was noticing a Facebook post for the Peachtree uh, restaurant, and they're closing now on Monday and Tuesday because they don't have enough staff uh, to make it work. So a lot of restaurants are saying they can't find people. And I don't know whether that's because of the COVID funding that went into making it more feasible to be unemployed and draw unemployment than it is to work. I don't know what the uh, rationale is. But one of the things that the mayor didn't touch on specifically was churches and funerals. Even though the churches are inside, does that mean there's no social distancing in churches? Uh, most of his conversation was dealing with restaurants and businesses. To an extent, a church is a business, but what's going to be the rules and regulations for church? Because a lot of people that we talk to are ready to go back to church. Michael. <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, Eric, he did mention weddings uh, in there, and sort of parenthetically, I think he's he's referring to churches there, but uh, you're right, he, he didn't bring it up. The other thing uh, on this uh, uh, shortage of a wait staff is the fact that because of some of the federal money that restaurants have received on this, and that there's a, you know, it's a it's a uh, waiter's market right now, now on this, uh, restaurants are, uh, a lot of them are having to pay more than they used to uh, for their wait staff. And the concern is, number one, can I swing that financially? And number two, what happens in a year from now or something like that when the market changes and we got folks on a wait staff that are making 20 bucks an hour and that's not the usual in this mar market. So they're kind of concerned about, the, about a shortage of uh, folks. Yeah, you also need to consider that some people when restaurants, um, you know, reduced capacity and someone to carry out only, there were people who switched careers and found other opportunities also. So there are a lot of factors at play that, you know, it may take time for some restaurants to get up to full capacity to have enough people to do so. More lives destroyed this week by violence in Kansas City. Our friends in public radio were mourning the loss of one of their own. KCUR reporter Aviva Okerson Haberman was killed after a stray bullet reportedly pierced the window of her first floor apartment in the Santa Fe neighborhood near 28th and Benton Boulevard. She was 24 years old. Just as Mayor Lucas was condemning the act that took her life, his own neighborhood was disrupted by violence. The mayor lives in the 18th and Vine Jazz District. Police closed off the area late Sunday night after a dispute outside a business left one person dead and three others with gunshot wounds. That quadruple shooting claimed the life of a former star quarterback at Center High School who's the owner of Powerhouse Gym in Raytown, Missouri. Gary Taylor was 34 years old. Steve Kraske, it's, I just wanted to start with you because you are at the station where Aviva died. What has been the response there this week? Well, it's been crushing, Nick. I don't know how else to describe it. Uh, infuriating um, 
disheartening, uh, all those things. And I, I think the emotions we're all experiencing there have been experienced hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other times by families in our community uh, in the last few years. And uh, I don't know what else to say. You see that much potential, the flame go out at 24 years old and you're left just uh, reeling. I've been heartened by the community's response. So many folks reaching out, a woman in the grocery store last night, uh, a card I got in the mail last night from a person I didn't know, uh, the crossing guard outside the elementary school when I ride uh, to, to the office in the mornings, people reaching out one after another. But um, people are, are, are clearly reeling at KCUR this week. It's been a rough week. And Eric Wesson, um, the mayor, saying this week, of course, that every single one of these murders in Kansas City this year and in the past, they all have a story behind them. But after all of this, um, we have lots of talk of condemnation. Tut, 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 why do we allow this to happen? But any talk of any policy changes as a result of this? Well, there's a couple of things. I talked to uh, City Councilwoman Melissa Robinson this week in great detail because usually when these shootings happen down here, there's these meetings and more police presence. But I think one of the interesting things that we talked about was privatizing the streets where people come into because then they would be subject to uh, searches. Now you can't search them because that's a public street. But if they privatize the streets, then they could search people coming in and out. And I think that's one of the things. And then there's this million dollar question about why we can't have enough police presence down here. You know, they say, well, we don't have enough police officers. But one of the questions that I raised in the editorial this week is what happens to the money that the city taxpayers give the police department when the officer retires? They give them a budget based upon a salary for the entire year. What happens if he retires in July? What happens to the rest of that money? And we believe that, and I'm talking to the mayor and the city manager, that that money could be used to hire other officers. So when they say they don't have enough officers, the question is why? Why aren't you recruiting? Why aren't you doing an academy to have more officers? Part of the police presence, though, the mayor talking about the fact that a lot of people don't want to see, you know, 50 more officers over at the 18th and Vine Jazz District uh, as a result of this. Uh, some people are, don't want to see an increased police presence, Kent. Yeah, there are differing opinions as to what needs to be done. The one thing everyone agrees on and the mayor vocalized is that what's happening now is clearly not working. But the problem is, is with an issue like crime, you, you need to find both short-term and long-term solutions. We've heard a lot about the long-term solutions from the mayor, which is economic development, uh, conflict resolution training, all of these things. But um, in the immediate uh, time frame, something else needs to be done to slow these shootings. And uh, we haven't heard any new ideas as to what could be done for that. And what about bullets going into an apartment uh, during uh, the period of the daytime? Um, what is done about that? You know, I don't know what's done about that, Nick. I, I don't, you know, to Kat's point, that there are no solutions here that have come forward. The police have made tweaks here and there. There have been some changes to new policy. We had another call this week for the removal of uh, police chief Rick Smith from civil rights leaders in, in town. No movement on that front either. It seems like on this issue, Nick, we are 
perpetually in a state of just being stuck. And uh, creative new ideas uh, spark here. A, a, a big change of one kind or another seems to be eluding us. I think we need to take a really hard look at, down the road here at something that's going to change the dynamic because it's not changing. Michael. Uh, the mayor was on a uh, uh, gun control conference um, a few days ago with a couple of other mayors. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, one of them was uh, Akron, Ohio. The other one was Durham, North Carolina, so Kansas City. And Lucas was clearly the biggest city of the three. It was with uh, um, uh, uh, the Brady Group and uh, every, every town. And um, he constantly expressed the frustration that pretty much everything he thinks that Kansas City ought to do from a legislative standpoint or an ordinance standpoint gets preempted by the, the legislature uh, in Missouri. The fact of the matter is, is that more cops, I don't think, are, are going to solve this in and of itself. It is a multi-layered, very, very complex problem that deals with poverty, it deals with opportunity, and it deals with gun violence. First, I want to extend my condolences to Steve and the people at KCUR. I'd actually done a couple of stories with her uh, then when she was covering issues in the black community. She seemed to be a great person. And of course, Gary uh, Taylor and his family and people that know him. I used to talk to him when he drove by. But one of the things that I, I wanted to add about the policing I think it's more so the visibility of police than police getting out, walking around, interacting with people. I think we're to the point now where people want to come down here and feel safe. And if you don't feel safe coming down here, chances are you're not going to come. So there's an economic issue here with people feeling safe and supporting the businesses down here. Which one do you do? And and I would be more inclined to say, just park a police car somewhere and let people know that there's a presence here, more so than people walk, police officers walking around. And I believe that Melissa has a great idea with privatizing the streets so that everybody that comes down here has to be searched. You're talking about Councilwoman Melissa Robinson, I think, Eric. Right. Know, a couple thoughts. You know, the pandemic is waning. The jazz community is eager and ready to get rolling again. Now we have the, these tragedies uh, in the 18th and Vine District at the most inopportune time, Nick. And something, Eric's absolutely right. Something needs to happen, or a lot of people, a lot of jazz patrons aren't going to be coming down to 18th and Vine. The community has been waiting for a year to get this thing restarted again. And now this. For the better part of a year now, there's been a steady drumbeat, as we've just heard, about calls for the removal of Kansas City Police Chief Rick Smith. They have gone nowhere. Now the push has crossed over to the other side of our state line, to Johnson County's largest city. This week, black clergy and social justice activists held a press conference to demand the ouster of Overland Park Police Chief Frank Donchez. Why, can't read? Well, there have been a lot of critiques of the lack of transparency there. And, you know, these the group is saying several scandals surrounding the chief, uh, particularly they're focused on his handling of the shooting of 17-year-old John Albers. Uh, of course, the, the officer-involved shooting report wasn't released. We're expecting that release soon, finally. But that was after 41 Action News actually filed a lawsuit to get those records, which we argue should have been open in the first place. So that's one aspect. There's also the, the 
the chief's handling of uh, the protests last summer and um, kind of the crackdown on protesters who were out there. So there are several uh, different factors, but it really comes down to, to transparency at the end of the day. In Kansas City, Missouri, Steve, we have a board of police commissioners, and that is appointed by the state, and that has been as part of the roadblock some would view as to why you can't get rid of Rick Smith. In a city like uh, Overland Park, though, isn't it just a majority of the council that decides whether they want to keep this person or not? That's right, Nick. That's that's where the, the rubber hits the road in Overland Park. And, you know, swinging back to Kansas City, put yourself in Mayor Quentin Lucas's shoes just for a moment. He wants to make changes to the police department. He has no control over it. Kansas City, the only major city in the country with a state-controlled uh, police department, you know, and you know, he wants changes to gun policy. He can't get it because of the state legislature. He's really in the, in a crux of, of, a, of a problem here uh, with really nowhere to turn. Can we put our um, shoes in the same place as the police chief, though, Eric Wesson? And that is, has this become an impossible job to do? The pressures, the demands on police chiefs today, uh, something that has never been seen before. Well, yeah, and uh, and it's, it's probably a tough job but I think that he could get by with it being a tough job if we saw some leadership and we saw some fresh ideas. I think the problem that we have within the urban core with Rick Smith is the fact that it's not like there's no comments, there's no direction. This is and policy changes are good. And like I say, they that, that's a, to me, just me personally, it's a lot of fluff if you don't back it up with action. You can have a thousand policy, but you don't. If you don't have a plan to implement those policies and the personnel to do it, then it's just a policy. But I think Rick Smith's problem within the black community is his inability to share with people the idea of what's the plan. How do people in the black community feel safe? How do they feel safe? Not only from being in a home, and a lot of the problems are in the black community. They're in the households. I'm going to say that. But a lot of the problem is leadership within the police department and what's the plan. How would any of that change, though, the violence we saw this week if we had a different police chief? Visibility. Uh, I think visibility probably because then Gary wouldn't have been in a confrontation with a customer, whereas a police officer would have. So I think that would have been a change and just having the police around the area because now they start closing the street off and they start doing a lot of things that I just don't think were, was the answer to what needed to be done. Steve. You know, listen, it is a tough job. And one of the big problems police have in our country right now is that citizens think they control, they can control the amount of violence that takes place in a community. To Mike Mahoney's point, far more complicated than that. Having said that, it's not too much to ask for transparency. It's not too much to ask for new ways to combat violence. It's not too much to ask for trust in the community to build that trust. That's the challenge that police chiefs face, and we need to demand that, that amount of accountability from them. And that's true in Kansas City as it is in Overland Park. Absolutely. Kansas and Missouri have been taken down a peg or two this week. The numbers are in from the U.S. Census that we filled in last year, and it's going to force us to change our school textbook and how we view ourselves in the future. No longer is Missouri America's 18th largest state. We're now 19th. Maryland has overtaken us. And if you live in Kansas, you've been taken down two pegs. Kansans can no longer say they live in the nation's 33rd largest state. Both Utah and Nevada have overtaken us. 
Um, so you're going to have to settle, if you live in Kansas, by the way, for saying you're the 35th largest state in the country now, which brings us to a fundamental question. Does size really matter? Other than bruised egos, what difference does it make, Michael Mahoney, that Kansas and Missouri are shrinking in size relative to other states? Well, there's a couple of things here. Number one, it's a sign of a uh, lack of economic growth, and that is troubling, and that is uh, something that's going to have to be dealt with, and it's not a, a quick fix. The other thing, because we got some political reporters on, on here, I'm going to bring this up. In Missouri, um, the Republicans now believe that the state is red enough and Republican enough that it ought to be a 7-1 congressional uh, um, uh, makeup here. And what I mean by that, there are eight seats total. Seven of them ought to go to the Republicans. One ought to be a Democratic seat. They're going to have to redistrict. Now, they are not going, the Republicans are not going to look at freshman Congresswoman uh, Cori Bush over in St. Louis, but they are putting uh, Emanuel Cleaver and the 5th District on the target list as a uh, possible pickup. In fact, the chairman of the party said uh, to me in an interview this week, uh, uh, Nick My Myers, we'd like uh, the 5th District to be Republican, including the city of Kansas City. On the Johnson County side in Kansas, same thing is happening. They're going to keep their four seats, but they believe that they are also red enough, Republican enough, that uh, they that four out of four congressional seats ought to be Republican. And for a year now, it's been an open secret that the Republicans, when they draw their lines, are going to try to make it as difficult as possible for Sharice Davids to win re-election by probably taking some Democratic voters out, giving her more Republican uh, voters. They're going to do the same thing with Cleaver's district in Missouri. That is one of the immediate shakeouts on this, is this battle over redrawing the lines in both these states with an intention in both the states by the Republican parties of going after the Democratic members of Congress. So are they going to start rejigging those lines right now then in both states, Kent? Well, it's the process is is coming soon, and it's going to be very contentious, especially in Missouri, where voters ended up repealing clean Missouri, which would have changed the redistricting process. So now we will have uh, Republicans and Democrats looking at those lines. And um, one thing that's kind of interesting is that, you know, they could use the state population from the census or they could only use the citizen population. So only count citizens in, in that redrawing of the lines. So uh, that process, I think there will be a big fight over that. And we'll just have to see how it shakes I out. I will say in Kansas and Missouri, we're not losing any members of Congress in this uh, redistricting shift. But I did see in New York State, uh, Steve Kraske, it was just 89 people. If 89 more people had bothered to fill in their census, New York State wouldn't have lost one of its congressional seats. So these, the filling in this form does make a difference. Oh, that's right, Nick, without any question. I just would point out that I think there are some big macro questions that policymakers in both our states need to wrestle with here. Yes, the, the populations of both states have increased, but at a much slower rate than most states around the country. Kansas's 3% population growth, Nick, the slowest, the lowest uptick since 1900. So what does that say? It says that you begin to wonder about the policies, the conservative policies in both states. Are those policies enough to attract people to your state? And based on these numbers, at a minimum, questions arise as to whether that's the case or not. And we need to have a conversation about that. Eric. And I, my, my thing would be, how many people did they actually count? 
uh, because even though there was a little marketing strategy going on, there were probably a lot of people, especially in the black community, that they didn't count. And those people that they didn't count didn't trust the system. We were going through the COVID thing. They were changing in the policy. So I don't know if the numbers are accurate, but it's accurate enough to do the redistricting. But one of the things that uh, that wasn't mentioned was what about state seats, losing state seats? I saw in Texas, they gained some seats, whereas in Missouri, what's going to happen with those seats? So that's a Mike Mahoney question. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, to, to ratify... <laughs> <Or Steve> Krasky. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to expand on Eric's point and go back to Kat for, uh, for a second, uh, there is a question about the numbers and there is a question about who they will count. It may not be total population. It may be just citizens. Or the other one is it might be in terms of redistricting voters. In other words, they wouldn't count a person under the age of, uh, of 18 who is ineligible to vote. So there's this is going to be darn interesting and look for a special session, at least in Missouri, to deal with this because there's not enough time left in this session and they've got to get it squared away before candidates start filing for 2022. This week, Missouri lawmakers still can't seem to break that stalemate over funding for Medicaid expansion, but that does not mean your local state representatives have been doing nothing. This week, they begin debate on a measure that would require women who get abortions to bury or cremate the fetal remains. Under the proposal, the woman would also bear the cost of the burial, which the bill requires to be included in the cost of the procedure. With so many other priorities competing for attention in Jefferson City, why is this bill considered so important to lawmakers, Kat Reed? Well, I think it's part of a huge uh, nationwide push. We've seen a lot of legislation like this, not only in Missouri, but it has been a priority for a lot of Republican lawmakers elsewhere. So I think that we're seeing this national push, and that's why that came to the forefront here in Missouri. It came up already in the state of Indiana, where Mike Pence, the former governor, signed a very similar bill into law, Steve Kraske, and the United States Supreme Court said it was constitutional. Yeah, and I just would point out that this bill in Missouri uh, is not even out of the House yet as we tape this, Nick. Uh, its chances for passage, it could pass, but it's less likely given how little time is left in the session. And I just would point out, based on our last segment here, th does this kind of legislation result in people being attracted to come to a state like Missouri, or is it repelling a lot of people? You know, and that, does that have an impact on the census numbers? Arguably, it might. Well, I did mention also the Medicaid expansion there. Michael Mahoney, I mean, is that a done deal now that they, they're not going to, they've stalemated, their money is not coming, uh, and this is just going to end up in a courtroom somewhere? Has, um, as everybody that's covered a state legislature or a city council meeting knows, nothing is dead until the <laughs> gavel comes down and yes. things are adjourned. Now, Wednesday night, the state senate in Missouri I think they killed off Medicaid expansion in the state budget, but I also expect it'll be coming back for another charge in the final weeks of the session. Uh, and if that doesn't happen, then there will be a lawsuit that will be filed by perhaps the uh, AARP or another group like that. They'll identify an injured plaintiff and uh, file a lawsuit on, on their behalf. And there may be another special session dealing with Medicaid expansion uh, because of a lawsuit uh, uh, like this. So 
it's dead for now, but lots of things come back to life in a legislative session down uh, down the uh, the final days. Same thing in Kansas, although it does look more dead over there at this point. Local governments, including right here in Kansas City, are collectively getting $350 billion in federal aid from Washington as part of what is called the American Rescue Plan. But how do you know they won't just squander the cash on all sorts of questionable projects? This week, Missouri lawmakers are on that, too. They began work this week on a measure that would allow them to review cities' pandemic aid spending. Mayor Quinton Lucas is horrified. It's inherent racism to continue to suggest time and time again that cities, particularly your larger blue cities, the ones with most of the black folks, most of the Latinos, most of the minorities, and a number of others are the ones that actually don't know how to handle their own money. Man, money, a little clip there at the end. He says it's racist and insulting, but as taxpayers, why wouldn't we want to make sure there's no abuse or fraud taking place? Isn't that a good thing, Eric Wesson? Yeah, it's a good thing, but the way they framed it is kind of questionable because they didn't say anything about Springfield or areas down in the Boot Hill. They uh, specifically said Kansas City and St. Louis. So I think that's where he kind of got uh, upset or irritated. But it is a good thing to have oversight, but let's talk about other areas too. I remember well, Cat Reed last year, for instance, in, on the other side of the state line, Overland Park, wanted to use some of its pandemic relief money uh, to put up floodlights at its soccer stadium and then backed off after a lot of public pressure over that. Uh, so, you know, money, you, we don't know where the money is going, right? Well, there are people who are supposed to be keeping track of this. And if you look at Missouri, there already is oversight from the state auditor. Nicole Galloway has oversight over how these funds are used. I think when you if you want to understand kind of the anger, the frustration, especially from the mayor, you have to go back to the first the round of CARES Act money, which, you know, the counties, it went directly to them. And then the counties, you know, the city had to fight for any money. And so there's a lot of, I think, frustration that, OK, we finally have this money and we're going to use it um, to help with COVID relief. And now people are wanting to look over our shoulder. So there's a, a long history to this frustration. You know, I've mentioned on this program before, we have a viewer in Kansas by the name of John who routinely emails me to say how many minutes we spend talking about Missouri on this program and how many minutes we talk about Kansas. So I want to end with Kansas here because Kansas Governor Laura Kelly may be suffering from a severe case of focal dystonia of the fingers this week. We more commonly call it writer's cramp. She's just come off a mammoth session of vetoing almost every major bill lawmakers sent to her desk. That includes measures banning transgender athletes from competing in girls' sports to tax cuts and election law changes. Oh, and also a bill that would have lowered the age of uh, to carry a concealed weapon in Kansas to just 18. She couldn't find anything to like, Steve Kresge? Well, I think she really struggled, Nick. I think there's a lot of political gamesmanship going on here. Uh, to some extent, uh, we're seeing Republicans sort of set the stage for the 2022 uh, election year. Governor Kelly's going to be seeking a second term uh, against a couple of Republican frontrunners there. We're seeing Republicans really set the stage and uh, coming up with campaign ads, if you will, that they can push at Governor Kelly for saying no to uh, items that are pretty popular in conservative circles, if not in Democratic ones. So this is about a squeeze for next year's election, uh, Michael Mahoney? 
This is exactly the opening round of the 2022 gubernatorial uh, campaign, and this is the the first act of the first first scene, and it's taking place in in, in the legislature. And just this week, this morning, I think, if not uh, Wednesday night, the Democratic Governors Association came out with a commercial that was casting uh, uh, Derek Schmidt and Jeff Collier as the handmaidens of Sam Brownback, and they did it sort of as a Night of the Living Dead, made it. Uh, gave it sort of a horror movie uh, uh, pitch to it. They're going to be invo involved in this. Uh, Kelly is the one of the most vulnerable governors up. Uh, she's the only Democratic governor on the ballot next year in a state that Trump right. won. And so this is the opening salvos of the 2022 gubernatorial election campaign in uh, the state of Kansas. And it'll play out more this coming week when the lawmakers in Kansas go back for their veto session, where they, among other things, have to craft a school budget bill. And they've got the state Supreme Court looking over their shoulder on that. So they could still overturn a lot of these measures just vetoed by the governor this week. When you put a program like this together, you can't get to every major story making the headlines. What was the big local story we missed? Not sure exactly what's happening here, but many of the homeless recently placed in hotels by the city are now moving out. It's unclear whether they were being disruptive or the hotel staff was being disrespectful or management was price gouging the city on room rates. Now the city announcing plans to build a tiny homes village for the homeless. The Biden administration says it will not reverse a Trump era decision to move two large agencies of the USDA to Kansas City. The offices will stay. Kansas City, Kansas schools hiring a new superintendent and the co-founder of the National Museum of Toys and Miniatures has died. Kansas City philanthropist Barbara Marshall was 97 years old. Starting Monday, twice as many seats up for grabs at Kauffman Stadium, the Royals nearly doubling the number of fans who can watch games in person. And a Kansas City man being celebrated by the movie-making world, Peter Spears got to stand on stage at the Oscars Sunday night as Nomadland won Best Picture. Spears is the film's co-producer. He was born in Kansas City, Missouri, later moving to Overland Park and graduating from Shawnee Mission South High School. Was it one of those stories that you picked, Kat Reed, or something completely different? You know, I want to go back to a story we did discuss, but in aspects that we missed, which is about Aviva, the KCUR reporter, immensely talented, who was shot and killed. If her story breaks your heart and if you want to support journalists in her honor, uh, KCUR and KBIA have established a fund in Aviva's honor that you can donate to. I would encourage people to check that out. Eric Wesson. I uh, chose the... Uh, homeless people being put out of the hotel. They uh, had a deal for $100 a night per room. It wound up being $2.3 million total, and now they want a little more money. And the people there saying that, hey, they don't want to move because now they've got jobs in the area uh, at the Denny's restaurant and at the other restaurant around there. So now they don't want to move, and now they're blaming it on the city for not doing something about it. Complicated business, that. Michael Mahoney. Uh, I'd pick um, a, a two, uh, not a big story, but the fact the Royals are increasing their attendance threshold uh, is a good sign of progress. Also sort of speaks to the fact that they're having a pleasantly nice start. Larger question is uh, the Biden decision to keep the USDA jobs that were shifted here into Kansas City staying in Kansas City. The USDA and the bureaucrats back in uh, the D.C. area don't like that, but it's good for the community here. 
Steve Kraske. I just want to amplify one of Michael Mahoney's uh, last points. As we tape this today, the Kansas City Royals have the best winning percentage in Major League Baseball. I got to end this, this show on a positive note. That's a remarkable achievement. They're off to a great start. It's something to get excited about in what's been a really rough week. Absolutely. Before we leave you, by the way, congratulations to Kat Reed on her big promotion. Some viewers say she won't appear on the show anymore now that she's been named Chiefs head coach. An eagle-eyed viewer pointing this one out. Carter says there are certainly worse people to be mistaken for. My big question, Kat, do you plan to rejigger the offensive line? Yeah, you know, I think there's some changes, and I'd like to add more horses. I don't think it should just be war paint. There should be several other horses on the field. All right, other than that, we will say we've not only reviewed the news, we've also overstated our welcome. Thank you to Channel 9's Michael Mahoney, The Call's Eric Wesson, Mr. Up to Date, weekdays at 9 on KCURFM, Steve Kresge, and Andy Reid, I mean Cat Reid, from 41 Action News. I'm Nick Haynes from all of us at Kansas City PBS. Be well, keep calm, and carry on.